Well, we have made it to the Tenth Commandment. We're on number 10 today. And the Tenth Commandment says this, Exodus 20. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Anything that is your neighbor's you shall not covet. And so at first sight, this final word of the Ten Commandments almost seems anticlimactic. I mean, we started with that monumental command, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I mean, that's a high, high mark. And now we end up with this seemingly mundane command, don't go wishing you had your neighbor's house. Uh, We mentioned those very high sins, uh, dark sins, obvious sins of murder and adultery and stealing, and now we're quibbling over, of all things, our neighbor's donkey. And so is God kind of fizzling out as he gets to number 10 to fill out his Ten Commandments? Is this one kind of nitpicky and really inconsequential? But the minute we say this, the minute we say absolutely not, absolutely not, this commandment, far from winding down God's top ten list, is actually the most penetrating one. Years later, you know this passage in Romans 7, years later, Paul, so righteous, surpassing everyone in his age, Paul says it's this commandment of the ten that convinced him that he was dead and guilty in sin. Romans 7, it's this one. God said, thou shalt not covet. I mean, it leveled me, he said. You see, this one is the one that explicitly states what all the commandments imply, and that is that the law of God is spiritual. And so this underscores how, really how unique the Ten Commandments are among all the law codes in the ancient world and in the world. Unlike any of them, uh, they're concerned not just with the visible, but with the invisible. Not just with actions, but with attitudes. Not just with, desi- not just with deeds, but with desires. In the Ten Commandments, God, resoundingly in the tenth, looks at you and says, I care about what goes on in your heart. I care about that. So this commandment isn't located at the end because it's less important than the others. Rather, God puts it at the end to stress beyond a shadow of a doubt that all the commandments finally and ultimately deal with intention and motivation. It's what's going on in our hearts, in the recesses of our hearts, what's going on. So to break the 10th commandment is to break the first table of the law, love for God, 
And the second table of the law, love for neighbor. Um, In terms of the first, you shall have no other gods before me finds its fitting counterpart in the tenth. You shall not covet. Why? Because coveting is to desire anything other than God in a way that betrays a loss of contentment and satisfaction in God. The one requires the other. It's like bookends to the Ten Commandments. And that's why Paul said in Ephesians and Colossians that covetousness, that one in particular, is idolatry. It's making something else, anything else, any good thing, really into an ultimate non-negotiable thing. So in terms of the second table of the law, to covet is to fail to love your neighbor. They go together too. So in coveting, we're consumed with me. I'm centered on me, what I want, my agenda, my desires, what's going to make me happy and my life better. I'm not interested, really, in helping or encouraging you. In fact, I really don't care how it affects you in coveting. And so we're going to think of three points. First, what it consists in. Second, where it comes from. And third, how do we cure it? What it consists in, where it comes from, and how we cure it. So what does it consist in? Well, Kevin DeYoung helpfully starts off his comments on the Tenth Commandment by just counseling us to slow down and just think about the details of the Tenth Commandment. So you shall not covet your neighbor's house. We go from seeing and appreciating our neighbor's nice house to saying in our minds, man, like my house is a dump. It's small, it's outdated, my appliances are old, I don't like where it's located. Why can't I have a house like theirs? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. We go from noticing, appreciating our neighbor's wife or husband to, I wish my wife was that attractive or that sweet. Like mine's always irritated or cold towards me. Or I wish my husband was that handsome or attentive. Mine's not present. Or a single person might think, well, why don't I have a wife or a husband like that? Or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. We go from observing our neighbor's stuff to, well, my car's a piece of junk. Uh, They always take incredible vacations. My parents are so lame. My kids are just slackers. Why aren't I as popular as her? Why aren't I as good an athlete as him? Why do I have to study so hard to get the same grades as her? I'm sick of this dead-end job. Why can't I have hers? And so coveting isn't just saying, I like that. Coveting is going further and saying, why do you get to have that? I wish I had it instead of you. In fact, I want to get it from you. So you shall not covet is better translated, you shall not set your desire upon it. Like fixate your desire upon it. 
So Melissa Kruger writes a book called The Envy of Eve. And in that book, she defines coveting as an inordinate or culpable desire to possess often that which belongs to another. And so inordinate is a big word that just simply means a wrong or idolatrous desire. And culpable means to desire the wrong thing. It's culpable. It's forbidden from you. It just doesn't correspond to you. So the basic uh, meaning of the Greek word that translates the Hebrew is also desire. It's the word epithumia. It's an important word. And, And sometimes in the New Testament, it's used in a good way. Like Jesus says, I earnestly desire to have this supper with you when he institutes the Lord's Supper. It's good. But more often it's used in a bad way because our desires get mixed up. So Keller draws out a good statement when he says it literally means over-desire or inordinate desire. That is, a controlling, ruling, governing desire. We just fixate on certain things to satisfy and fulfill us. And whatever we say, that's what's really going on. And so Paulison insightfully states in a famous article on on idolatry and vanity fair, worth your read, if idolatry is the characteristic and summary Old Testament word for our drift from God, then desires is the characteristic and summary New Testament word for the same drift. Both are shorthand for the problem of human beings. It's that drift from God and worshiping a creature instead of the creator. So covetousness is this umbrella term. It's a big term that encompasses a whole lot. It includes such words that are, that are grimy, that we don't like to use, that are like envy or, or sinful jealousy or, or lust or greed. It kind of wraps all those together. So to envy is to compare yourself with someone to resent them for their advantages, that twinge of disappointment when something good happens to them instead of you, and and to want what they have. To be jealous or sinfully jealous because you realize that, that God is jealous in the best way. That is, he protects what he loves from threats. A husband and a wife must be jealous, parents of their children. But there's a sinful jealousy, and that is, it's, it's to fear someone's, uh, it's to fear, let's see, where is it? Yeah, it's to fear that someone is about to surpass you or outshine you, <laughs> um, get more attention than you, succeed more than you. Or to be angry that someone's threatening what you love, and what you love is you, and so they're threatening you. To lust is to have an intense, selfish desire for someone. This me-oriented desire, just intense desire for someone. Usually we use it as a coveting applied to sexual desire. And then greed is the love of money and the anxiety to Get it and keep it, whether we have it or whether we don't have it. And so it's coveting applied to wealth and possessions. My security and safety is found there. And so it's this bad mix. We know this 
this toxic mix of desires that churn around within us. So Thomas Watson calls coveting a mother sin. It's a root sin. It's a sin that begets other sins. And so back to James 1, 14 through 15 again. It's one of the best. It's the cardinal passage that shows the root of covetousness and how it develops into actual sins. And so once again, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And some theologians call this the stages of desire. And so our hearts have latent desires. Oftentimes those are sinful desires. And something happens that sparks one of those desires. We're lured and enticed. But it doesn't stay there. Rather, we kind of nurse it. It it conceives. But that's not enough because we kind of ruminate on it and we stay with it and it grows and matures like a baby in the womb such that we give birth to acts of sin. We actually plan and carry out an act of sin. And so it births sin. But sin is never content to stay in limits for us to use it. Rather, it wants to use us. So the point is it develops a habit to where we repeat this process more and more, and the habit gets more ingrained, and the goal of that is to lead you to death. A cold indifference to God or death and eternal death. And so it's important that you know, that we know that the initial stage has the same goal as the final result. And so we don't be fooled because the initial stage of sin always looks glamorous and incredibly fulfilling. But underneath that is the same goal as the end when we recognize the results of it. It's death. It's death. There's a famous illustration that Martin Luther gave when some a young monk was talking about sexual sin and lust, and Martin Luther goes, look, you can't help birds flying over your head. I mean, you're going to have those thoughts passing through your head, but you don't let birds build a nest in your hair. Like, don't indulge it. Put it off. So we see some wonderful, well, glaring um, convicting illustrations of all this. Remember, we talked about Ahab warning Naboth's vineyard. And so he sees the vineyard. Like, he has everything, but this one guy has one vineyard that's up against his, and he can't live without this other vineyard. He has everything, but it says when he saw it, it conceives and grows. Naboth says, I'm not giving you my family inheritance. Ahab goes home, curls up in the bed, vexed and sullen. Self-pity depression because he can't have this one guy's vineyard. So with the help of Jezebel, it grows until it's birthed into action. And so they set up two false witnesses to accuse Naboth publicly. They break the ninth commandment. They judicially murder him. The sixth 
He legally steals his vineyard, the eighth. His covetous desire conceives and births all this. In fact, we can even say he really broke all the commandments because commands one to four he breaks because Naboth can't live without the vineyard. It's become his God. Command five he broke because he abused his authority of the shepherd king. Command seven he broke because Jezebel and he aren't growing in holiness as a married couple. They're growing in sin. He breaks it all. And it starts with looking at Naboth's vineyard and conceiving sin. Or think of David when he coveted Bathsheba. So David's walking around on the roof of his house. He has a glance and sees a beautiful woman bathing. And biblical narrative puts stress on all of its details. And after saying he sees a beautiful woman bathing, it says, and the woman was very beautiful. The point is, he looks at her and he stays there. It's not a passing thought. He indulges it. It conceives and starts growing very fast until he's got a plan. He takes her. He breaks the eighth commandment. He steals. He sleeps with her. He breaks the seventh commandment, not to commit adultery. When she gets pregnant, he tries to trick her husband. He breaks the ninth. And when that doesn't work, he arranges for his death. He breaks the sixth. It all starts with that thought that he indulges, that covetous root. So are we covetous? If I came up to you and says, you are covetous. You wouldn't like that at all. It, it's got such a, it's like you don't want to be called that. It feels real grimy and yucky. Are we covetous? Do we have to own that? Well, there's several ways that we can diagnose our own hearts because our hearts are deceitful. It's hard to look into them. Ask yourself this. Are there things about what you say if only I had X, I would finally be happy. If only I had blank, I'd be able to get up in the morning with a spring in my step and not be so gloomy and complainy, critical. If only I had that, my life would be okay. So think about it. If only I had like more friends better community, if only I had different talents or, or that person's talents, if only I had success, like I just don't think I'm getting the success I want, if only I had a fitter body, then I'd be all right, or better toys, I just want some more fun things to do, or greater entertainment, if only my kids were okay, or I were at another stage of life, or increased harmony in my marriage or my family, if only then I'd be happy. And the thing is, it makes it so difficult to, to, to discern is all these are good things. They're all good. They're good gifts. But you see, for putting them in the blank, if they become an if-only gift, then they become your functional gods. And therefore, you're coveting them. They're your non-negotiable that you have to, have to have for happiness. Or look at it this way, do you find yourself comparing yourselves to other people a lot? It, it, your gifts are fine, but they kind of fade in your affection because they just don't stack up with what your neighbor has. Or do you find yourself complaining a lot? You just kind of have a complaining spirit. Is it, it's not fair, like a, a, a young person, you know, 
The parents give one child certain privileges and not another one. It's not fair, but we all have that mentality. Like, why do they have that and I don't have that? Why do they enjoy those experiences and I don't enjoy those experiences? Okay, well, where does it come from? Where does coveting come from? It's a deep root. Well, we can say even more than uh, what we've already said. Uh, it's a root that begets other sin. Um, it's, it's not just desire, but it's over-desire that makes good things into ultimate things. It exposes idolatrous hearts. All that's very important. But really, it's even deeper than that. The, the, the depth of coveting is the, the deep sin, the fundamental sin of unbelief. It's just unbelief. And so Melissa Kruger highlights three areas of unbelief that drive our covetousness. So the first is, it's unbelief in the character of God. It always gets there. So think of a child who asks for a treat, maybe the grocery line, and she wants something sticky and sugary and sweet. The mother says no and gives her something healthy, maybe an apple or something. And the child may pitch a fit and have to go to her room. Uh, what motivates that temper tantrum is that she doesn't like her mother's authority and she doesn't realize her mother's acting for her good. She has no idea that junk food is going to cause problems. we we'll put ourselves there because we have our own little polite temper tantrums with God. In a similar way, you and I just don't trust God's sovereignty and we don't trust His goodness. We kind of kick against His sovereignty in our life and we don't really think He is for our best. And so Scripture talks a whole lot about this, sovereignty and goodness. Uh, sovereignty in dispensing talents and gifts in the country you live in, in your callings, in your relationships, always for your good, even those trials and hard things in your life. His sovereignty and His goodness remember Joseph learned that lesson. It's so fundamental in the Old Testament that Joseph's brother were just wicked, evil towards him. I mean, to think that they would do that to their younger brother, sell him into slavery and all the bad things that unraveled from that. But then God put him right where he wanted him to be. And years later, Joseph said, look at his brother and say, look, you did mean it for evil. It's your responsibility. But God meant it for good. He meant it for good in my life. Even years that seem wasted, he meant it for good. He was sovereign over it for my good. And the best example of all is the cross itself. Wicked men carried out dreadful, unconscionable schemes against the Lord Jesus Christ and got him betrayed and accused falsely before Romans and Greeks and did all manner of wicked things to him. And yet God looks at the tragedy of the cross of Christ and the infliction of pain upon his beloved son and said, I ordained and overruled all of that for your ultimate good, your forgiveness of sins and salvation. I did it. And we look at the cross of Christ and we say God is sovereign and God is good. He's sovereign over your health. He's sovereign over your wealth. 
your gifts, your callings, your friendship, your family, your relationships, your work, everything. He's sovereign and he's good. Second, it's unbelief in our purpose, like why we're here. When we covet, we're really thinking that this world is all there is, that it stops here. I mean, we don't say that. We would never say that, but we're feeling and acting that way. Whatever we say we believe, our practical belief is to truly be happy, I need to have things here. I'm not designed really for a relationship with God. I'm not really on a journey to glory. I'm in a closed system. I'm a functional materialist. I'm not a spiritual being, and I'm not designed with my deepest love to know God and to be known by God. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that I'm not part of this incredible drama that God's realizing in the world where everything matters and I get to represent God and His healing mercy in this world. I'm not saying that I'm being crafted and shaped and molded to worship God with all my being one day, which is what I'm fashioned to do. I'm eliminating all that and saying, I need this here. Third, it's unbelief in our relationships. When we covet, we view our neighbor. Our neighbor becomes for us the measuring stick of God's love for me. So if they have something that I don't have, then God's failing to be good to me. Like he doesn't love me as much as them. I wouldn't say it, but I'm feeling it. If we have something they don't have, then we kind of feel more blessed than our neighbor. Maybe God does love me right now. And so this way of thinking actually divides us up. It breaks community. It doesn't help to bind us together. We start viewing even our brothers and sisters in Christ as either tools to get what we want, as obstacles to preserve prevent our satisfaction or as competitors and rivals to the good life. And so since we never compare ourselves with people out there or the, the, the big people, we always compare ourselves to people kind of like us. There's a narrow window. Just recognize that. We compare ourselves to people like us. Then what that does is break up real community. And we lose sight of the fact that we're joined together. We're a body. We're a family. Our point is to grow in relationships, and in growing relationships, we go in holiness. So to really fight against these covetous desires, we have to fight against unbelief. And that's really what the evil one and sin is after in us. And it's really like Eve herself at the very beginning when the devil shows up and he shakes up her commitment to God's goodness for her, and then he denies God's sovereignty in her life. And at that point, that fruit, which was at first just interesting and appealing, becomes this ultimate desire she has to have at all costs, and she plunges the world into sin. Adam too. Well, then we get to how we cure it. We want to cure our hearts. Really, our life is about curing our hearts. And so how do we do that? Well, we cultivate a belief in God's sovereignty and God's goodness. Practically, take that opportunity. But we can say even more. It's really important that we know that God doesn't rule out desire. He created us with desires. He, he's happy with our desires. It's part of being image bearers. It's part of being stewards. 
The Puritan Thomas Watson said, it's lawful to use the world. Water is useful for sailing a ship. All the danger is when the water gets into the ship. So enjoy the world, but don't let the world get into your heart. And that's the caution the 10th commandment gives us. But throughout Scripture, we see God approving good, legitimate desires. Just think about the Psalter. Not only those elevated desires of of loving God, but also desires like deliverance and, and safety and the boundary lines being pleasant for us and family life. They're good desires. But we can say even more. He's not just saying, watch out that those desires get too controlling. He's saying, you don't have to give up desires, but increase your true desire. And really, we recognize that that's the issue. We don't have our true desire clear, and we're not nurturing our true desire. And so C.S. Lewis's famous quote in A Weight of Glory fits so well here. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and, and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so God looks at it and says, don't settle. Don't make a God out of a temporal desire. Get your true desire right. In fact, the 10th commandment points and tells us to see God as the one who earnestly desires to know you and earnestly desires that you know Him. It points to the very heart of God who has a covetous desire that you be in fellowship with Him. What a God. The cure of covetousness hinges on connecting with our true desire. And so Psalm 73 shows Asaph having to do this. Wonderful Psalm. And so Asaph is this like worship leader And he's looking around at all the wicked folks around him, these godless folks, and they're just living the good life. They're rich and healthy and at ease. They don't have problems. And then he's looking at himself, and he's seeking to follow God, but like he's struggling and suffering. He's looking at, and this this observation kind of takes root in his heart. It conceives envy, and he says, I got envious. I became a brute beast, and my heart became covetous. And he even says, like, why am I following the Lord? It's all in vain. But then in God's grace, he goes into the temple. He sits in God's presence. He settles his heart down. And he starts to pray. He like, he, like, unloads all this on God. And God meets him there as he promises to meet us right there. That is a fertile place for God to meet us. And he helps him realize that earthly riches just can't last. And that he's created for more than just earthly riches. He helps him realize that he is made for God. He is made for glory. 
And then he utters those amazing words that might they be the cry of our own hearts in the midst of those challenges? Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Not just for tomorrow or during the short span of my earthly life, but forever. He gets his first love clear in the midst of that trial. And God invites us right there to do the same. And he promises he's not going to fail us there. And so the cure of covetousness is contentment. It's Paul's high watermark of sanctification when he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And see, contentment isn't resignation. It's not the consolation prize. It's this wholehearted, abundant sense that I've got my first love right, and because of that, everything comes into place. The hinge of it is in chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, when Paul says, I consider it all rubbish, not because it's not good in itself, but because in order for the surpassing worth of gaining Christ Jesus my Lord. To the effect that in chapter 1, Paul says, I actually desire, epithumia, I actually desire, I have an over-desire, but this is a good one, to depart and be with Christ. And if that's where the affections of my heart are, then everything else comes into place. Contentment is the right ordering of our desires. It's saying, God is that wonderful. Jesus in the gospel is that rich. His blood, his righteousness, his tender heart towards me, his daily companionship and strengthening and friendship of me. The body of believers is that precious to me that I'll push through. Your growth and grace and earthly usefulness for the eternal good of others, is that compelling and satisfying? I know why I'm here. The hope of glory is that enthralling. It, it fills my mind and my heart so that other good things are good, but they're not ultimate. So we can desire them and not covet them. It enables us to enjoy them more because they're tokens of God's grace to us and enables us to use them as signposts as we walk step by step all the way to our eternal inheritance. And it just kind of paves the way like a little lamp on the path that says, I'm for you, and here's a little token, but more's to come. And so we get to redouble our efforts, refresh our minds, encourage our hearts, and plug in and get busy and do what God has called us to do, and on all the time, rest in Him who is our portion who is sovereign and good and has proven that to us by giving us Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Let's stand.